Well, good morning. Uh, will you join me in a, a brief prayer? Let us pray. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. <clears throat> because we are so politically divided, our daughter-in-law, Karen Anderson, has been working on a special project at VPR called One Small Step. Maybe you've heard some of those programs. The idea is to get two people of opposing viewpoints from different political positions and have them sit down and talk with and listen to each other, not about their politics, but about their lives and what it means to be human. Listen to the news and you can't help but conclude that as a nation, we are becoming increasingly divided, divided on major issues, racial injustice, gender identity, abortion. You fill in the blank. These divisions manifest themselves politically, but they are much deeper than politics. Our divisions go to the very heart of what it means to be human. To say we are politically divided is to miss the problem. The real problem is that we disagree about what it means to be human. So where do you go to answer the question, what it means to be human? As Pastor Dave shared on Christmas Eve from the Gospel of Luke chapter two in the Christmas story, and I had never looked at it this way before, Dave. In the Christmas story, we have two sources of information there. Caesar Augustus, who issues a decree, and the angel of the Lord, who appeared to the shepherds with good news. In other words, there are the secular authorities and the divine authorities or revelation. To simplify, do you look to the world for your answers to what it means to be human or do you look to the scriptures? Where did the framers of the Declaration of Independence go? for an answer to what it means to be human. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created. Now let's stop there for a moment and take that in. Created, not spontaneously generated, not produced by chance, not evolved from a lower life form, but created. And it's self-evident that all men are created. All you have to do is look at the wonder and the intricacy of the human body to conclude it had to be created. But by whom or what? 
Let's read on. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. There it is, a creator who created all humans as equals and endowed them with certain unalienable rights. That means rights that can never be taken away by governments because they weren't given by government. But it is the role of government to safeguard these rights, to protect these rights, and that among these rights are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The framers had a biblical worldview of what it means to be human. Now open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Or look up on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The very first chapter of the Bible tells us what it means to be human. To be human is to be created or made by God in his image, in his likeness. To understand what that means, one has to look at the context. As one of my son's seminary professors said, context is king. And so if you go back to the very first verse of chapter one of Genesis, you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that tells us that God is a creator, that God is creative. Verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, God is verbal. God speaks and communicates with words. He creates with a word. And God saw that the light was good, verse four. God not only speaks, but he also sees or understands, meaning that God is personal and rational with intelligence and a will. God is moral. He has a moral sense as to what is good and what is not good. Genesis 2.18 says, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse five of chapter one, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. God names that which he creates. Verse 28, and God blessed them. God said to them, God communicates with man. God is relational. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God has a plan, a purpose for humans. 
such that we share in his rule over the rest of creation. And then chapter two, verse three says, God rested from all his work. So God establishes a pattern of work and rest, which he shares with humans. So this is a very brief example of how we determine God's image and what it means for man to be made in the image of God. Obviously, we don't have time to be exhaustive here. The slide tries to capture some of the ways we bear God's image or we reflect God's image. So when humans were first created, they were personal, relational, communicative, creative, rational with intelligence and a will. They were given authority to rule. They were morally good, just, compassionate, and loving. But as we learn in Genesis chapter three, our first parents fell because of their disobedience to God. God's image was diminished, not just in them, but in the whole human race. We retain God's image in the sense of remaining rational, personal, relational, creative, etc., but we have a sinful nature that is capable of great evil and inhumanity. We have lost God's moral goodness and the ability to always choose the right and the good. Thankfully, because of God's great love for us, he sent his son Jesus to save us from our sin by dying on the cross in payment for our sin with his precious blood. When we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, he restores our relationship with God, damaged by the fall, and regains for us the eternal life lost by the fall. And with the Holy Spirit, he begins the process of restoring God's moral image in us, a process called sanctification. Jesus in his humanity bears the perfect image of God he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, nine. Next slide. I have always found this diagram by Francis Schaeffer helpful. God is the creator, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, eternal, and as such is distinct from his creation. So that's why you see a line there that divides God from his creation. There is a separation between God the creator and the creation or the created. The creation involves man or humans, animals including birds and fish, plants and things, earth, water, rocks, etc. But just as there is a separation between God and his creation, there is also a line there between man and the rest of the created order. 
There's a separation between man and the rest of God's creation because man is the only one that is made in God's image, in God's likeness. And man is given dominion over the rest of creation. We know people have come up with different answers to the question of what it means to be human. Look at this next slide. The first column is the biblical worldview of creation with God as creator as I have been describing. The second column is what happens when God is removed as creator. Man is no longer distinct from the rest of creation as an image bearer of God since there is no God to bear his image. Now there may still be those who refer to man as somehow different or more noble, but they've lost any basis for making that distinction. And so in the third column, man is, as a special part of God's creation, disappears and is just another animal. In the last column, everything is reduced to matter, just a collection of atoms and molecules and electrical impulses, etc. This is the difference between the angel of the Lord, that is God's revelation, column one, and Caesar Augustus, that is the secular world view, column four, when taken to its logical conclusion. There are consequences for how people answer the question of what it means to be human. In the remaining time since yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and next Sunday is the 49th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, I'd like to examine three Supreme Court cases to show how two of the divisions in this country, racial injustice and abortion, have been more than political divisions and go to the very heart of what it means to be human. Next slide. Scott versus Sanford, 1857. I've always heard the name Dred Scott, but I never really knew his story until recently. Dred Scott was an African-American slave who was born in 1799 in Virginia where he was owned by a man named Peter Blow. Remember that name. Peter Blow died in 1832. Dred Scott was then sold by the Blow family. In 1846, Dred Scott, who was now married, and his wife Harriet, each sued their current owner, Irene Sanford, thus Scott versus Sanford, Emerson, for their freedom after trying multiple times to purchase their freedom from her, only to be denied every time. 
Since neither of the Scots could read or write, they received help from their church and their pastor, John Anderson, no relation, a number of abolitionists, and surprisingly, the Blow family. The Scots based their lawsuit on two statutes in Missouri where they currently lived. The first allowed any person of any color to sue for wrongful enslavement. The second statute said any person taken to a free territory automatically became free and could not be re-enslaved upon returning to a slave state, which Missouri was. Irene, her husband, and the Scots had lived in the Wisconsin Territory for some time where slavery was outlawed by the Missouri Compromise. Therefore, the Scots should have been freed and not re-enslaved when Irene and the Scots returned to Missouri after Irene's husband died. It took 11 years for this lawsuit to work its way through the court system until it reached the Supreme Court of the United States in 1857. The court ruled seven to two against the Scots, which historians regard as one of the worst and most consequential rulings in U.S. history. Chief Justice Roger Taney, writing for the majority, said that all people of African-American descent, free or enslaved, were not U.S. citizens and could never become U.S. citizens and therefore had no rights to sue in the federal court. In addition, the court upheld the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which protected people from seizure of their property without due process, arguing that the Fifth Amendment protected slave owner rights because enslaved workers were their legal property. The court also declared unconstitutional the Missouri Compromise, which outlawed slavery in the Northern Territories, saying the government had no right to prohibit slavery. This decision, which viewed the Scots as legal property, that is, non-persons, and therefore non-citizens, so enraged abolitionists, it was one of the things that led to the Civil War as this nation wrestled with the question of what it meant to be human and to be created equal. All men are created equal. Less than three months after the court's ruling, Taylor Blow, the son of Peter Blow, Scott's original owner, purchased the Scots and freed them and their family. Dred Scott lived for 15 months as a free man before dying of tuberculosis in 1858. His wife Harriet, 
lived another 17 years. Now you know what the Dred Scott decision was all about. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. I never knew who Homer Plessy was. Do you? In 1892, a shoemaker and activist named Homer Plessy wanted to test the constitutionality of racial segregation in Louisiana in what was called the Separate Car Act. He bought a first-class train ticket and took a seat in the whites-only car. When the conductor asked him if he was colored, he said yes. Plus, he claims he was seven-eighths white and one-eighth black. And so what makes you colored? The conductor told him to move to the blacks-only car. When he refused, he was arrested and dragged off the train and put in jail. His friends paid a $500 bail to release Homer, who then filed a lawsuit against Louisiana which went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. In 1896, the court upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation by a vote of seven to one, paving the way for Jim Crow laws and what became known as the separate but equal doctrine, relegating blacks to separate public drinking fountains separate public restrooms and dining rooms and separate public seating on buses and trains and separate public schools. After losing his appeal, Homer Plessy pled guilty and paid a $25 fine and lived the rest of his life as a convicted criminal. It wasn't until more than half a century later that the Supreme Court finally overturned Plessy versus Ferguson by unanimously ruling in 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education against racial segregation in the public schools. An interesting side note is that just 11 days ago, January 5th, 2022, the governor of Louisiana posthumously pardoned Homer Plessy 130 years after his conviction. I don't know if you happened to see that in the news, but that just happened this January. Plessy versus Ferguson is yet another example of how racial division in our nation has been more than a political issue, striking at the very heart of what it means to be human, to have dignity, to be created equal and made in the image of God. Roe v. Wade. I know this is a painful topic for many people, and I'm sensitive to that fact, 
but we need to be able to talk about it. The Supreme Court of the United States was asked to determine if the Constitution recognized a woman's right to abortion. They are still being asked that question, as you'll see in a moment. On January 22, 1973, in Roe v. Wade, the court ruled seven to two that a woman did have a right to abortion up through the second trimester of her pregnancy. During the first trimester, abortion was solely up to the woman. During the second trimester, states could regulate abortion but not ban it. And during the third trimester, states were free to regulate or ban abortion. In 1992, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court replaced the trimester framework with viability, the point when a baby can live outside the mother's womb, approximately at 24 weeks, ruling that after viability, a state is free to regulate or ban abortion. Now in 2021, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Center, the court is being asked to decide whether all pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional. You see, it's over a law that Mississippi passed saying that abortions before or after the 15th week would be illegal in Mississippi. And so the court agreeing to take the case will focus on whether there is a constitutional right to abortion. Lawyer Charles Cooper in an interview with NPR said, there's rarely been in American jurisprudence a decision as widely criticized as wrong and even egregiously wrong as Roe v. Wade. Roe is as wrong as the court's 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson decision, which upheld racial segregation, a decision that took more than half a century to reverse. Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop in their book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, wrote back in 1979, in our day, quite rightly, there has been great protest because society in the past viewed the black slave as a non-person. Now the law, in similar fashion, declares millions of unborn babies of every color of skin to be non-persons. All human life, born and unborn, young and old, black, white, brown, yellow, is valuable simply by virtue of being made in the image of God. The government under Roe v. Wade currently allows unwanted, imperfect, or merely inconvenient unborn babies to be killed 63 million 63 million since 1973 and counting because they were considered non-persons with no right to life. 
We must ask what is to stop the government from allowing unwanted, imperfect, or inconvenient elderly people, that is, those who are a social nuisance or an economic burden, from being euthanized by considering them non-persons with no right to life. This is why it's so important to know that humans are made in the image of God and therefore have great value whether unborn, born, or elderly, regardless of their handicaps or imperfections or mental ability, they all have dignity. So what shall we do? Next slide. I recommend three things. Next slide. First, we need to repent. Repent of the ways we are guilty of devaluing human life by being silent, by being uninvolved, by being uncaring, by not understanding others' plights, by being uneducated as to the issues. Secondly, we need to love. We're called to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors and our enemies, those with whom we disagree. And what might that look like for you? Third, we need to get involved. Not just to repent, not just to love our neighbors, but to get involved. What can you do to uphold the value of human life, born and unborn? Are you aware that the Vermont legislature is proposing to amend the Vermont Constitution with Article 22 called Personal Reproductive Liberty and known as Proposal 5? If it passes the House this session by a simple majority, you'll be asked to vote on it in November. You better know what you're voting on. If the Vermont voters pass it, it will guarantee Vermonters unlimited, unregulated abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, even though the word abortion is never once mentioned in the proposal. Unborn babies will be unprotected unlike the 215 plants and animals that are given legal protection in Vermont. Why wouldn't we want to protect unborn babies as well? Is it because we no longer understand what it means to be human? Inform yourselves, take action, Pray for the Supreme Court of the United States as they wrestle with whether a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion or whether an unborn baby has a right to life. Pray that the Lord gives them wisdom for how to deal with these two competing interests. So repent, love, 
and get involved. As we read in Micah 6.8, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have created us in your own image to be a reflection of you in all the world. And Lord, we confess that we have not always acted in ways that are loving, in ways that understand what it means to be human. Forgive us for our own prejudices, for the ways that we have shunned others that we have disagreed with. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving our neighbor, not loving our enemies. And we pray that you would help us in these areas and help us, Lord, to inform ourselves, to be constant in prayer, to take action, action that upholds what you have taught us and what it means to be human. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.